This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants, to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this, too, will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September, and the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. Welcome back once again to another episode on this ongoing series on tree planting and agroforestry. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our conversation with Mark Krawcheck about the practice of coppicing woody perennial plants and woodland management as a whole. Now for a quick recap, Mark Krawcheck is the author of the new book Coppice Agroforestry, Tending Trees for Product, Profit, and Woodland Ecology. Mark is an applied ecologist, educator, and grower incorporating the practices of permaculture design, agroforestry, natural building, traditional woodworking, and small-scale forestry. He also owns and operates Keyline Vermont LLC, providing farmers, homeowners, and homesteaders with education, design, and consulting services. And he and his wife also manage Valley Clay Plain Forest Farm, 52 acres of field and forest in New Haven, Vermont. Now, despite the focus on coppice agroforestry systems that this conversation continues to revolve around, Mark and I also go into a wide array of other topics, including the long history of forestry management in indigenous cultures around the world, understanding invasive species, woodland products and small craft economies, fire mitigation strategies, and a whole lot more. So this is the second of the two-part episode, and if you missed the first portion, I highly recommend that you go back and have a listen, because it's really worthwhile, and it'll also help to put more of what we're talking about today into context. Another bonus that comes along with this episode is that, thanks to New Society, the publishers of this book, I'll be offering a free volume of Coppice Agroforestry to listeners of the show. 
And yes, even though I first announced this last week, there is still a chance to win. So be sure to stay tuned until the end of this episode where I'll let you know how you can win your very own copy. Now with all of that out of the way, I will hand things over to Mark Krawcheck. Yeah, I'm really hoping that with a lot of what is happening in current events, uh, we could talk about the heat waves and the ensuing fires that are happening right now here in Europe um, and other ecological emergencies. It's starting to open up the space for better forestry management, finally. And there's, I'm starting to hear conversations happening from clients, from even at uh, political levels, about okay, what are we going to do about the forests now? You know, they're becoming either a liability for having left them for so long, or, you know, best case scenario, it's just like, it's it's something that, you know, kind of gets glossed over when we talk about how to manage land. It's either agriculture or it's conservation, and there doesn't seem to be much in between because of how devalued these woodland spaces are. And I think a conversation also needs to start to happen about how the goal, especially with conservation, is not necessarily that we move all of the existing woodlands back into closed canopy forests with just mature species. Because I think you alluded to this a second ago that there is it's almost like a bell curve, right? Where you start from, let's say, a clear cut where there's no vegetation, but then you can also get up to a point of closed canopy dense forestry where there's minimal biodiversity in that as well. There's very little light reaching the lower levels and there's maybe perhaps a few large senescent species that are not really contributing and, and are in need of rejuvenation. And so there's, there's conversations to be had on both sides of, of that spectrum. Uh, as well as this, you know, increasingly dangerous fuel load that's amassing from woodlands that we've just stopped to to manage because, you know, there's it's either niche economies that have kind of gone away for a while, or people just can't be bothered because there's more profitability in the other enterprises on their piece of land. It's it's really good to see that this is starting to work its way into the larger conversation around ecological management. Agreed, um, and I I think that's also one of those arenas where you know what I hope this book provides readers is not just you know the tools and information necessary to apply coppicing in various contexts but also um, a, a more holistic understanding of forestry to the degree I was able to kind of weave it in recognizing that coppicing is is a tool in our toolkit but there's a lot of other really valuable relevant tools that we can use and that not all tools are appropriate in all contexts so Coppicing isn't necessarily better than, you know, a, a selection type high f forest management, like continuous canopy cover approach in the right application, having that, you know, multi-storied, um, you know, complex strata, super diverse, but, you know, dense canopy cover is, is going to be optimal. But in other situations, it can become something that's, that's really limiting to, to biodiversity. For example, we've got, um, patches in our, our woodlot. We've got 40 acres of woods and about a third of it was abandoned. It was pasture, you know, up until the 1960s and then it was left to regenerate. And around us, what you'll tend to see as the pioneer canopy species are quaking aspen and white pine. And so now we're at a point where we've got, you know, 80, 100 foot tall white pines, most of which have branches from, you know, all the way down to the bottom. They're 12 to 18 inches in diameter, but they have zero market value because the lumber is really low grade given all the knots. But for us, 
we're happy to make lumber out of that or make, you know, building timbers or whatever. So um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has some great grant programs out there through their conservation stewardship program. And we were actually given funds to monetize this management through the lens of habitat diversity creation, uh, a patch cut, a one to two acre clear cut um, as a way to do just what you're talking about, which is kind of this intentional but targeted disturbance just to create some edge, to create some diversity, instead of having you know eight acres of all this kind of closed canopy white pine with very little growing in the understory. Now we've got this patch that basically it gave right. So some of it, what's happened in there is coppice. There was a small patch of the quaking aspen trees that now became about a half of that patch is aspen that's you know 10 feet, 15 feet tall tens of thousands of stems that came up, which is, you know, fantastic browse and, and, uh, and habitat for all sorts of wildlife that appreciate those kind of more full sun conditions. And so just in the, again, that same way of this, this kind of um, cut and come again, patch scale disturbance, um, you know, we can apply this, these ideas without necessarily being concerned about it being coppice, you know, it's that, that targeted rejuvenating disturbance that really comes into the mix here. And, um, but yeah, it's it's encouraging to see forested landscapes, you know, being recognized for their ecosystem services as well as the wood products they provide. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that I love about your book is that though it is focused on coppice agroforestry, it gives its dues to many different types of forestry management and how they fit into essentially a mosaic way of managing based on you know, the necessity, the context, and all of the other factors needed to do so in a regenerative way, instead of making a recommendation that, okay, this works, and it has worked for a long time, so it will work for you no matter where you are. Sometimes we can fall into that mindset as well. And that kind of comes to how forestry is looked at now. Uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about how it's shifted in the past and why coppice agroforestry has nearly gone extinct for, for a period. How did that happen? When did the shift in mindset or the practices come about? And you know, was it mostly technology or, or access to other fuels? And also, how is it starting to make a revival, a resurgence again in modern times? Yeah, um, great question. So a theme that I think is really fascinating, it kind of, it, it's built into the history, was that um, one of the primary products that coppice stands provided like through the middle ages was charcoal and charcoal represents this kind of energy dense value-added concentration of uh of heating potential but also you know it was essential for industry and so the for example there's a there's a figure in the book i think it comes from oliver rackham who's a historical ecologist from the uk we're talking about two thousand years ago he talks about one district in um what was then roman britain that would have required an estimated 23,000 acres of coppice to sustain the military ironworks. So industry had a ravenous appetite for fuel and it was essential. And so he actually posits that if it were not for industry, it's very likely that much of at least the British Isles, but I could imagine this would have extended to the European continent would have been cleared of forests because for many people, the, the need to grow food was you know, at least as important as their need for wood products. And so kind of counterintuitively, industry sustained the forest. 
And I think that's a really key thread to the relevance today as well, which is the economy is an essential part of the plan um, for your management. And it's not to say that every patch needs to make money, but it we need to think about how there's that kind of reciprocity that either the ecosystem services are providing adequate value, et cetera. So given that industry was really the primary consumer of these wood products through time, the it wasn't so much of coal being discovered as a resource, but it was more the transport infrastructure to enable coal to be moved long distances that really started to usher the decline of coppice, at least in the UK. Um, because it became, you know, the mining industry as opposed to this kind of more complex husbandry of, of woodland management was just that much more um, simplified and provided a lot of opportunity uh, to extend the reach of, of production beyond its proximity to a nearby forest, et cetera. And so it appears that coupled with what ultimately was the undermining of the um, of the commons, it, going back to some of that discussion we had on the feudal system and the nature of, you know, the the commoners' access to land. What we started to see again, this is British history, although I think there's corollaries through a lot of Europe, um, was this move toward the toward enclosure, which essentially required landowners to partition off their property in order to maintain ownership of it, which meant that the, the villagers were increasingly being um, walled off from access to the resources they needed, which you know that coupled with the rise of industry meant that there was this kind of migration towards the cities, people were being removed from landscape. And, and so that's where we started to see kind of the, the, the demonetization of a lot of these like cottage industries and crafts, as well as the, the more subsistence lifestyles that people uh, achieved. And, and then with a major industry kind of switching fuel sources um, in relatively short period of time, you know, all of those converging forces seem to really have begun to, to transition um, the, the values uh, ascribed to, to coppice woods, coupled also with, we see a, a transition over time of lengthening harvest rotations and um, higher proportions of standard trees, the value of whole wood became less and less as land was consolidated and technologies kind of caught up with the ability to process and move materials. So we started to see this, you know, longer and longer uh, rotation length and, and less trees being managed for sprouts in, in the, that interim. So all of those forces, um, you know, started to, to create this transition to the point whereby, you know, the early 20th century or mid 20th century coppicing had, had really um, largely been, you know, not quite forgotten, but um, kind of relegated to, you know, much more niche periphery um, of, of a lot of these uh, woodland uh, management practices. There were a few directions I was going with this, but I wanted to start off with the economy piece. You asked a really good question and now reorient me here for a second. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to think what my question, because I, I was trying to bring it like full circle, right? And yeah. why it's relevant in modern times, even though it has been mostly replaced by fossil fuels and larger industry and the technology that makes it uh, easier to harvest and process large, large dimensional lumber. Um, how do you see it fitting into 
future management or present management even uh, yeah. our woodlands ecologies. Great. Uh, so that that is a good thread tying together my last answer there, which is that um, first off, I think it's essential that again we have clear defined needs. I think the what, like what is coppicing? Once we get that, that's almost superfluous to the why. The why is the most important reason um, for us to 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 apply these techniques. <clears throat> and there's essentially you know, this untapped potential for using pole wood products that is limited really only by our imaginations. Um, and so I think when it comes to the modern relevance, increasingly, like I, I came to coppicing learning about this sort of systematized rotation. Maybe you'd have a 10 acre patch and you're going to cut one acre a year for 10 years. And ideally the materials you want are going to be have reached that size after 10 years. So you kind of have this perfect rotational system. I think that's a lot less relevant to most people today. First off, because it's gonna take sometimes generations to get these systems producing what they could, especially if you're starting from either open space um, or you're trying to kind of transition an existing forest patch into coppice. Um, also, I, I don't know that it's always the best technique for us to use if we have existing forest. Um, and so I think it's really a big part of it is reviving this kind of economy of pole wood. It's about recognizing the utility and the value in, in smaller diameter materials. Um, and then it all comes back to like, how is it meeting either your needs or meeting some very clear market demand for products? And so there's all kinds of ways that that can play out. I think for a lot of farmers, because one of the challenges is this often tends to be a bit more labor intensive. It's often, you know, kind of human scale management. And so as we start to scale it up, it becomes more challenging for it to fit some of these, you know, industrial scale approaches to management, although it is possible. Um, but I think some of the ecosystem services that plants, woody plants can provide um, are some of the highest value opportunities there. And so I'm thinking about shelter belts and windbreaks shade for livestock, um, browse almost more so than like kind of cut and carry fodder for animals. I think that you know, at the subsistence technique or, you know, when you're raising animals at a very small scale, those can be great strategies. But if you just supplemental fodder that the animals can browse as they have access to them, fantastic. But again, just like, you know, riparian buffers that can be harvested, you know, every 15 or 20 years for wood products. And in a lot of cases, you know, as scale increases, complexity has to decrease. And so things have to get simpler um, because it's a few people going in there with chainsaws and skidding the materials out and it's got to get done in, you know, one or two days. Whereas like for someone that makes woven wattle hurdles or baskets, the, the value proposition of those types of products is much higher because there's so much labor, more labor built in. So it, it, it's essential, it's, it's contingent on the skills and vision of the manager, um, which ideally then is either tied directly to their own needs or you know, the market demand that they see out there for products they can produce. And I'm not, it's, it's a little bit of a non-answer in some ways because it's, it's really it, dependent on each individual and how it fits into, into their uh, specific context. But even just the idea of like growing woody biomass for, 
for um, tree crops, I think has potential prospects. So we see this a little bit. I'm, I'm a novice when it comes to centropic agriculture, but the idea of like growing your fertility adjacent to the crop is another way that I can see some of this. It's not necessarily monetized in the, in the way that some of these traditional practices would have been, but it's creating more of a closed loop within the farm ecosystem. Yeah. And I love that this ends up bringing up so many other side conversations when you start to talk about coppice agroforestry, things like what it would look like to uh, revive the commons of our lands, what it means to uh, in, involve yourself in a culture that sees the longer term life cycles of an entire forest and how you pass down skills and knowledge to be able to go through multiple, let's say 20, 30, 40 year harvest cycles that no one person's lifespan is going to you know, encompass and the traditions and the, the festivals that come out of that kind of a cultural involvement in the ecosystem. And of course, what you said too about how this is very dependent on the context and the place, the, the ecosystem that you're managing, how would you say that people could start to, let's say, go into an abandoned woodland and analyze its health or assess it for its potential for coppice management or a way of getting in there and kind of reviving the cycles through heavy pruning, pollarding, coppicing, whatever it might be, that intervention? Yeah. Um, so... There's, there's, there's several metrics that we can look for in a forest stand to assess suitability for these practices. It is a little bit of a frontier because there isn't a clear roadmap for like how to create coppice from existing forest. The, the way that those systems, you know, the historic systems we see express themselves over time likely evolved over hundreds of years. And, and they were the result of just kind of this, you know, human landscape interaction that in many cases would have spanned multiple human generations. I think it's really important to recognize it's health is a, is a hard thing to um, pinpoint when it comes to forest ecology. But if I've got healthy trees that are, you know, desirable species, we've got a mix of diameter classes, age classes, there's, you know, an understory represented, we've got you know, 12 inch diameter oak trees or 16 inch diameter hemlock trees or something like that. I tend to think of those types of stands as being much better suited to just typical conventional silvicultural techniques. Um, in most cases, meaning like uneven age selection management, um, where you're maintaining that continuous cover of canopy and you're identifying individual trees that you're harvesting. You're, 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 if, if the forest was a tree, it's pruning the forest. Um, and so you're, and, and I think the, the, the ethics of ecoforestry are really foundational to that, which one of which is like the, the needs of the forest come first, that we're always looking to just remove dead, dying, diseased, weak, and the lower value individuals first. So I would say if it looks like it's diverse, if it appears to be in good relative health, meaning the trees look strong, you don't see a lot of wound, the canopies look robust and full, You've got diversity of species and age classes. I would tend to say that's not a good candidate for coppice. As we get into what would be considered like even aged forest stands, where it looks like everything's more or less at the same point of regrowth, that starts to become something where it's going to make a lot more sense because you're not interrupting this already kind of diverse 
you know, structure and age class that's there. Um, also, traditional coppice systems were very dense. So we're talking like six to 10 feet between stools in a stand. And that, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because you're going to just generate more wood from that same stand. You're kind of optimizing productivity within that patch. Two is you're not leaving all these open niches for other stuff to come in and fill in those gaps. And then the third reason this uh, would be it's going to tend to encourage really straight, upright growth with minimal, you know, outward branching. And for craft materials, that's very important. So density is something that I'm looking for. Um, if it's, you've got kind of this even age stand where everything's kind of at the same relative age um, and height, that could be a, a good candidate. But if there's a lot of space in between the stems, there's going to be a lot of filling in that you'd want to do ideally in order to really optimize what's going on in that patch. Um, there's a number of ways you could work your way around that. To some degree, this is speculation. This is what I would want to do if it was my situation would be because you're going to have to open up enough light when you make your first cut to make sure that those sprouts can grow vigorously. And so that generally means you're going to have to open up a minimum of about a third of an acre um, we're talking like a patch hundred feet by hundred feet, or maybe, you know, a little bit bigger than that, like at a bare minimum, that's also dependent on how tall is the surrounding canopy. And usually we'd limit it to like the one to two acre patch cut as far as like the extent of that scale. Um, but there's a, a forestry technique called, um, a seed tree cut where essentially you try to time your harvest to a year where the desirable tree species are putting out abundant seed and you're generally leaving a few trees per acre in order to, you know, seed into that stand. So that would be something like if it was a patch of oak trees, ideally we'd be timing it with a mast year where the oak tree is going to put out a ton of new seed. And so the forest is planting itself rather than you going in and having to like fill in these gaps with seedlings you plant. So I'd be looking at the density of the stand. That was the other theme there. Um, and then also the species and the, the age in the species I'd be looking at. So as we mentioned earlier, most conifers aren't going to coppice. So we've got patches where there's like dense stands of Eastern hemlock. Already, that's not a great candidate unless I wanted to clear that already and try to flip the species composition there, um, which maybe there's a reason to do that. But for me, the beauty of most forestry is that the forest tends to plant itself really well. And so if we can kind of, you know, sail with that, tend the stand rather than kind of impose our will by planting into the stand, it's less work for us. It's a more elegant solution in the long run. Um, and it allows there to be kind of this push pull between people and landscape. And then the third thing I would toss out there too, in, in terms of assessing suitability would be, I think this is the fifth thing actually, but I'm calling it the third thing would be the age, um, which we generally look at the diameter or the height of the tree in order to give us an idea of what the age is, because I haven't mentioned this. Uh, I think I briefly mentioned it earlier, but as trees grow older, many species lose the capacity to sprout with vigor. And so beyond 30, 40, 50 years for many species, they're not going to sprout back with that same, um, just vitality that they do when they're in their, you know, teenage years to, to maybe 30 years. And it does depend on species. 
but um, you know, if you've got a 15 inch diameter stand of, um, you know, white oak trees, they probably will sprout, but they'd probably do it much more aggressively if they were 15 or 25 years. And so that's just another thing to keep in mind is um, how far along the stand appears to be if you're anticipating and hoping for sprouting coming from what's already there. Yeah, that's a really important consideration. I'd hate people to go in and start lopping down really large trees with the expectation that they're going to shoot back up. That's, uh, that's important to know. And you talked a little earlier about the amount of products that can come from this type of management, all like a huge variety, as well as, you know, the, the marketability of some of it, even in current times. Where do you see perhaps career opportunities in forestry management like this right now? Are there openings for alternative or historical ways of managing forest? Or is this something that you kind of have to have your own land to, to make money off of? Yeah, thank you. Because this, this brings us back to part of the question I think you last asked, which was kind of um, land tenure, the succession of like human management on land over time. And I do think that is that coupled with wildlife pressure and browse on young sprouts. Those are two of the biggest challenges I see to um, to making these practices more widespread. Um, when it comes to land tenure, I think one of the beauties of forested land, and perhaps this is your experience with these clients you've got there in Spain, is that tons of people have forests and they have no idea what to do with it, nor do they have the skills, time, energy or vision to want to engage with it. So I think in many ways, it is one of the best opportunities for landless or cash poor people that have skills, vision, and energy to be able to build a relationship with landscape um, because there's just abundant forest that's basically sitting without any intervention at all from people. Um, and so I think that is a great opportunity for someone that has the desire to participate in land management, um, but not doesn't have the means to buy land. Um, I want to just kind of speak to what you asked a little bit earlier too, is like, then how do we kind of ensure that the energy that we're doing or that the effort that we're um, putting into this management might be perpetuated in time? And there's not a ton of tools for that because we don't really have the, the economic or the social structures in place to help preserve that. I mean, the the, the nature of private land ownership really complicates this like land tenure succession in time. And I think that's where land trusts and conservation easements become really important. But that is something that's largely undeveloped um, in the realm of this kind of succession of forest management over time. Um, the idea of the kind of the, the, the long-term low-cost lease, you know, which I think a lot of people have been using as as creating some investment uh, prospect for agroforestry systems for, for landless folks. Um, seems like it makes a lot of sense. The 99 year lease or something like that as a mechanism to make sure that, you know, if I go in to manage uh, a property that I don't own, I have some insurance that I'm gonna be able to continue to do that throughout my lifetime. Um, and then as far as like job prospects or opportunities for earning livelihood, this again, I think is where imagination is really essential because so many of these products, like people don't know about the difference. Like we grow log grown shiitake mushrooms, which isn't anything that's that uncommon, but 
I realize increasingly that there's a story behind the management that people don't necessarily get when they just buy your product. Um, and so there's a, a degree of education why this is different than mushrooms that are grown in more of you know a laboratory setting on substrate that's been sterilized and uh, or pasteurized. Not to say there's anything wrong with that, but as we move into some of these other realms where perhaps um, we're making you know woven products or we're we're making barbecue charcoal or artist charcoal, it's like you really have to do a lot of education of the customer. You have to you have to build your niche. You have to be a, a good entrepreneur often because it's not just the product, it's the story, it's the management, it's what you're doing. And so there's essentially at least two ways you could approach this. One is that, okay, I have this patch of woods that has this resource, what can I do with it? And so that might be based on the size of the materials. It's often gonna be also contingent on the species because some species are better for certain things than others. So there's, you have the resource, what can you do with it? And then the other end of it would be you have the skills where do you procure that resource? Or how do you maybe adapt the skills to accommodate the resource you have? So some of the prospects I think that um, are, well, first off, I think diversification is really essential. And this all comes back to the idea of adding value to raw materials. That's kind of the foundation of the polewood economy is that you know one person's kindling is someone else's art project or someone else's, um, you know, whatever it is, uh, the installation, it's, that's another form of art project, but it's, it's something that's almost decoupled from like the actual tangible value. Yet, you know, you might be able to retire on, on a single installation if you're, if you're talented and creative enough. Whereas for, you know, the typical logger, it wouldn't even be materials worth hauling out of the woods. Um, so just recognizing all of the possible uses of a material and always trying to use them for their highest potential um, as, as one place to begin. And, uh, and then, so that was kind of, I was beginning by outlining these kind of two different approaches. You've got skills versus you know, materials. Um, and, and I think part of that is just gonna be emergent in a design. Like I, I as I um, started to develop my, my passion working with, with wood products, I became a chair maker. So now I'm starting to look for materials that are well-suited to that. But maybe I don't find the materials that I learned to use because I learned to do all the kind of riven split out from often large diameter materials to get there. So I decide, okay, I'm going to start making rustic furniture because that's really well-suited to coppice because you're using wood in the round, you know, small diameter stuff. Um, proximity to markets is really crucial. I think one of the most lucrative opportunities would be the woody cuts for the floral products. Um, talking about things that have either interesting shapes or colors or um, flowering species that can be harvested during dormancy and then brought indoors. And, and they, the term is forcing so that they, they, they're forced to, to bloom. Um, those would be things like hydrangeas or flowering quince or, or uh, cherries, things like the corkscrew willows. Um, so you were talking like dollars, you know, three, five, ten dollars per stem um, that someone could generate. You, know, you know, dozens of dollars, hundreds of dollars off of one coppice stool, you know, each season. That really requires proximity to market. So where I am, there's not a huge demand for that sort of thing. So I'm either needing to wholesale to a distributor um, or travel to a larger population center where there might be that. Whereas I think like 
in a more urban environment, there's tons of opportunities for those sorts of high value niche products. Um, I think obviously like the woven crafts are something that will be with us forever. Um, but also within that is just identifying new niches that aren't already exploited. I don't know if there was a tradition of woven caskets that went back in history. I wouldn't be surprised, but I've seen that as kind of this emergent new product, especially with the increase in interest in green burials. But, you know, just creating this space to reinterpret products, looking at the versatility of materials and not being limited by what's been done in the past. Um, and again, in, in a lot of ways, this is really a business development pros proposition. It's, you know, is there demand for this? Do I want to make it? Can I get the materials? Um, but I think the sky is really the limit when it comes to, and, and our imaginations are also the limit, the, the, the limiting factor um, for, for how we can leverage this. And I guess the other thing I would just toss in there is that this to me starts to mark the frontiers of what modern coppice could be because you know, I often think about it again in this, you know, rotational patch scale, clear cut um, type formal system, whereas coppicing is something that we can do at the plant level, at the, the individual level. And so you don't need to have this, you know, 10 acre rotation. It could be, you know, vacant lots or field margins. There's a guy I, I met in Michigan in the, in the U.S. 10 years ago. He's got a partnership with someone that owns land along the margins of an interstate. And it's just this wild patch of red osier dogwood and him and his family, they make wreaths and other kind of decorative um, woven products. They don't own the property. They just go in there and they, they tend this field margin. And I don't know which came first, you know, the, the product or the relationship to the landscape um, or to the material, but that's something that works really well for them. They're not paying taxes. They don't own the, on the land. They don't have to own it themselves. And it's just some, some wild stand. And, and you could be doing that just with a small little patch, um, you know, again, kind of in the, the back of a vacant lot. So it's really about kind of creativity. It's about, you know, this is where also I look to a lot of the, the, what we often call like the trash trees or, you know, exotic invasive species, et cetera, opportunistic plants is huge opportunities because the, the, the kind of dominant paradigm now is just to try to eradicate these species that are colonizing ecosystems quite readily. And for me, it's like I could battle or I could try to transform wild forest into something that I'd like to see it as, or I could try to find opportunities to market things that people want to eradicate from the landscape in a way where there's this participatory tending that's going on there. Um, it's a much more elegant solution to, you know, invasive control um, is, is, you know, finding ways to, to quote unquote, eat, eat the weeds rather than just, you know, beat them. Oh yeah. I've got a perfect example of that is uh, the property that I'm moving on to. They're trying to eradicate black locusts from the riparian zone, which I, I get it. They're, they're, they're pretty invasive in that context. They can outcompete some of the natives that they want to promote. But my goodness, is there ecological and economical potential in that tree? I know you've planted some on your own land, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, as a species, it's, it's an all-star for sure. It does come with some, some challenges. People don't like the thorniness of the tree. 
um, although that tends to to really decline as it gets more mature. Um, and then the the suckering habit of it, which is the the nature of a number of species that coppice vigorously, they'll also send up sprouts from their root systems. So it tends to want to form a bit of a colony once it's established, and that can be problematic in some cases. But it's a real anomaly in the world of plants and woody plants because it grows fast, but it's very dense. And we usually don't see those two things um, overlay on one another. Most of our fast growing species like poplars and willows are, are you know, very lightweight. And so they tend to be more poor when it comes to fuel sources. Um, and then the other property of black locust that's fantastic is its durability. It's just incredibly rot resistant. And then it makes, you know, fragrant blossoms that are fantastic for fodder for bees. It's a really quality forage for livestock and wildlife. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of potential there. But again, that all comes back to context too. I mean, if you're trying to do something else that's not compatible with the species that's there, well, in some cases, it probably makes more sense maybe to rearrange your goals because you can spend a lot of work fighting what the landscape quote unquote wants to be, or you can you know, make lemonade from it and, and, um, and kind of just, you know, stale with succession rather than motoring against it. Yeah. Incorporate your goals into the reality rather than try and force it the other way around. Well said. Well, look, Mark, I could definitely continue this conversation with you for a long time, but I want to be respectful of your time. Can you tell our listeners, first of all, how they can find the book and how they can reach out to you and get in touch? Absolutely. So uh, I have a few different websites. Um, the book is available on our farm website, which is valleyclayplain.com. C-L-A-Y-P-L-A-I-N, Clay Plain, which is uh, a, a nod to the natural community that was once ubiquitous in, in the part of the world where we live, the Valley Clay Plain Forest. Um, there's a website called Coppice Agroforestry that has some great resources. Um, and that's just coppiceagroforestry.com. And then my kind of design and consulting uh, arm of, of my livelihood is keylinevermont.com. That's uh, not keylime as in pie, but K-E-Y-L-I-N-E, keylinevermont, all spelled out.com. And, um, and uh, was there another thing I was sharing? resources sure. or yeah was there something else you wanted to get and, out oh, so what i was going to say is for for non so i currently i'm really only shipping books to uh dom domestically to the to the states so for people in canada go to new society publishers in europe we're still finding kind of the optimal source for that i've heard people use booktopia local booksellers should be able to order it for you um but the shipping costs are astronomical these days so I'm not shipping there, but um, there's also an ebook available through the publisher, New Society Publishers. Fantastic. Yeah, that covers all the bases. Look, Mark, it's been such a pleasure to finally connect with you. I've admired your work uh, on the forums and in the Regrarians for a while. And it's so great to see all of this research and experience that you've been building for over a decade come together in this book. Congratulations on that. And I look forward to being in touch. I'll definitely reach out as I learn more about these systems with the clients that I'm working with. I, I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Oliver. It's great work that you're doing and it's a pleasure to be part of it. Thanks once again to Mark Krawcheck. I've included all of the links on how to learn more about his work and the book Coppice Agroforestry in the show notes for this episode on the website. And of course, as promised, 
I'm also giving away a free copy of the book through New Society Publishers. All you have to do to be eligible to win is to send me a message through the Regenerative Skills Discord server letting me know that you'd like to win a copy of Coppice Agroforestry. You can find the link to join for free on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com or through our bio on our profile on Instagram. And if you're based in the US or Canada, you can win a hard copy of the book, and if you're outside of North America, you'll be eligible to win a digital copy. Now the Discord server is where the conversation around these topics on the episodes really comes to life, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So whether you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you don't miss an episode. Anyway, that wraps things up for today's session. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.